Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and as always, here with Richard Hill. Uh, yes, here I am, managing editor, and uh, uh, what do you usually say about me? Some terribly nice things, <laughs> but uh, no, it's. Uh, I, I'm excited. I'm excited about mm-hmm. this. I've got a dear friend in with me now. I want us to sort of get to it because I want to take as much time as we can uh, with wonderful man, Dr. Dan Siegel, Daniel Siegel, who a lot of people will know for a, a lot of books from the Developing Mind, Mind Sight, uh, and we have a wonderful new book. Just give us a a couple of reminders for those people who, <laughs> who might not know him and, and his wonderful new book. Yes, so Dr. Dan Siegel, he's a psychiatrist who graduated from UCLA uh, in pediatrics and child, adolescent and adult psychiatry. And he has been an amazing influence in the world of psychotherapy with his books, The Developing Mind, as Richard just mentioned, which was for me personally, an absolute game changer, I would say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, look, there'll be links in the show notes. If you don't know who Dan Siegel is, and I doubt there'll be many listeners who don't, we'll check him out. Absolutely. So his work with interpersonal neurobiology, creating, making that a field in itself. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I hope we'll talk a little bit about the framework of that uh, during our talk. But uh, he's over there in California. So yes. will we head over straight away? Just very quickly, if you do appreciate what we're doing, jump across to thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. Become a member. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Okay, let's go across to Dan. Dr. Dan Siegel, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. Great to be here with you and Richard. Hello yes. to both. Yeah, I'm I'm here indeed, Matt, uh, Dan, and and it's great to see you. We we bumped into each other down in Melbourne uh, recently, yep. at, uh, which was which was a lot of fun. And uh, every time we started to talk about something, ten people came up to talk to you. It was it was <laughs> it was great. But it but it's um it's wonderful. You were down there. Lou was down there. It was uh, it was a, it was a grand experience, and yeah. you travelled around a little bit, but um, but really. Really, what we're here to talk to you about, and there's a million things we could talk to you about, and, uh, but you have uh, finally put Mui down into a book, uh, and I've been waiting for this for a long time. So that's yeah. what we want you to talk about. So great. Well, tell us a bit. Well, thank, thanks for having me uh, to talk about this, and you know, I have been looking for a way to take, you know, this. Um, really moment of thinking about, you know, uh, where we are as a humanity, uh, where we are personally that way, where we are professionally, where we are like that on the planet, really, and, and in public ways. And to think about, you know, what the word me really means and what the word we really means. And, um, you know, just like a long time ago, uh, I think for many of us, the word mind was equated with brain activity. In fact, Hippocrates was saying it was brain activity alone. Uh, you know, there's a broader way to think about the mind. And although indigenous teachings have said this for a long time and, and contemplative practices of meditative reflection have taught this too, that the separate self is an illusion and even Einstein called it a delusion of consciousness. You know, we in modern society use that word self 
as a synonym for the individual. So, uh, you know, it's not only, you know, possibly wrong, but it's potentially a lethal lie and a lie we keep on telling ourselves. And, you know, as sadly with the viral pandemic, all the other pandemics are intensifying, you know, racism and social injustice, polarization and misinformation, even digital addictions, loneliness, mental health pandemics of, in, at least in the United States, of depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide. Um, one thing you can look at is that these, including climate change, are a result of, certainly worsened by, but probably a result of the self being defined as separate. So we can call that a solo self, just to name it as something, where the word self in our various languages implies the individual, the skin encased body, or bodies like yours, a plural solo self. And so what I you know, tried to do in, in uh, exploring this, one time I, I gave a talk called Me to We, and one of my students came up and she said, you know, you really make me angry. You know, she had more colorful language than that. And I said, yeah, tell me what makes you angry. And she said, your talk is called me to we. She said, you've taught us so much about knowing our personal history. I said, yeah. She goes, that's me. I said, yeah, that's you. She goes, and to feel the body fully with interoception. I said, yeah. She goes, that's me. I said, yeah, that's you. And we went on and on with all things, enjoy the body, take care of the body, sleep the body well, feed the body well, exercise the body and she said, look at your title. Me to we is a phrase that implies get rid of me and then just build a we. I said, you're right. She goes, is that what you mean? I said, no. She goes, well, say what you mean. I said, well, what I really mean is not only me, but also we. She goes, that is so clunky. It doesn't work. I said, well, if you're going to integrate something, you've got to differentiate and link it and not lose the essence of the differentiation when you link. That's what integration is. So I, so I guess it would be something like me plus we equals we. And she goes, that's it. And so from that little interaction with a colleague, I mean, you know, a student, she, uh, she, you know, inspired this word to be born. And then over the, you know, I don't know how long it's been, over 10 years now, since she said that to me, you know, I've introduced it. Some people love it. Some people don't love it. They think it's a weird word. But what's, English, what's interesting in English, and actually it turns out almost every other language, is we don't have a word to capture, like, how can you be both the within and the between? What's the wholeness of it all? And, you know, the word intraconnected came out in a related way where I was at this retreat with some system scientists. We were studying relational fields and um, so we went on a retreat for a week and three days of that seven day retreat was to be alone in a forest. So we were put in different places in the forest to stay by ourselves for three days. And then when we came out, we all came around a circle and everyone was saying what their experience was like. So people were saying, oh, I was so interconnected with the trees. I was so interdependent. I was interbeing. I was interlaced. I was interwoven, all these things. And then it was my turn. And, you know, I I'm a little bit of a nut for words. So I said, you know, I hear all those words and I resonate with them, but that actually wasn't really the way I would put words to the experience, which I think was similar to what you're saying. But 
for me, it wasn't that the body of Dan was connected to the trees. So we were inter the betweenness between the body and the trees. It was, I was the trees and I was the creek and I was the sky and I was the body. It was the whole withinness of it all. So I guess I would say intraconnected. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that sounds good. So we went back to the place we were staying where we had our computers and stuff. And I tried to type some notes on what I experienced. Every time I typed intraconnected, the autocorrector changed it to interconnected. And, and I said, well, this is weird. Why won't they let me say intraconnected? So it turned out it's not a word. You know, it's not a word. So I said, wow, okay, so maybe it should be a word because, you know, the way the mind works is you've got this tip of an iceberg as the, the linguistic symbols we use beneath that are the concepts, beneath that are the categories. So in English, we actually don't have a word to speak from the directionality of the whole. The closest we have is interconnected. But that word inter means between. So between two things, two entities or two events even. But so anyway, that became, you know, an opportunity. I wanted to call the book Mui, the intraconnected nature of reality. And my editor beautifully, and I think appropriately said, no one knows what in the world Mui is. So the compromise was to make it the subtitle, you know, so here's what we compromise. And I love, I actually love it. Yeah, but it, So I was able to put intraconnected, which no one knows what that means either. Either, yes. <laughs> but it's we, and then we clarified it, parentheses, me plus we, yeah. as the integration of self, identity, and belonging. And so this is the actual book. It'll be out in November. But that's what happened, you know. So that's, you know, you don't want to create a new word unless you need to, because otherwise it's just like there's enough words already. Um, but that's where the words came from. We yeah. and interconnect. That's the origin story, if you will, of these words. And then the story behind the words, of course, is, you know, we we are in this really painful place both as a human family and what we need to do to be more uh, realizing that nature is us, but also as mental health professionals, you know, um, you could argue that the, I think, innocent way we've looked at things like, you know, self-regulation, self-actualization, self-awareness, self-compassion, um, all the words self-connected to all those beautiful, wonderful things, they inadvertently reinforce the lie of the separate self because all of them imply the self and the body. So, you know, it, it, it's subtle, but when we get language telling us a lie, we then reinforce the, the, the lie concepts and the lie categories so that we have what in attachment terms we would call an epistemic um, mistrust. You, you're being told a lie that you don't even know is a lie. And in many ways, you, you can see that when people don't belong, when they have an identity as separate, it's really easy to not belong because you don't. Because you're told that who you are is just in this body, your body's like yours. So when you look at the incredible process of belonging and what comes from that is the awe, the gratitude, the compassion, what are usually even called self-transcendent emotions. I'm working with researchers who are in that field and we were working together, Dacker Keltner is one of them. And I said, you know, even the name of your study area is creating a problem because you're calling them self-transcendent emotions. Let, would you be open to changing them? She goes, he goes to what? I said, self-expanding. 
emotions so that we see that each other are the self. Nature is the self. And then there's a whole analysis I do. I read a whole bunch of science books on self and tried to extract from them the conciliant or common ground finding. And three features were discussed in every scientific approach. Subjective experience, having a center of subjectivity, perspective, having a center of a point of view, and agency, having a center that initiates your actions. So that, of course, is an acronym, SPA. So, so when you use the word self, you can say, could I have a subjective sense of the forest? And the answer is yes. Could I take the perspective of the whole of the forest? And the answer is yes. Could I act on behalf of the forest? Of course, the answer is yes. So then it started feeling like, okay, well, if all the different sciences can be seen as saying the spa is the way you say what the word self means, then why are we saying the self is only in the body? So that's what the journey of the book is, is, is to invite you in to look at indigenous teachings, some from Australia, to look at, um, you know, contemplative teachings, which have been around for thousands of years and say, hey, this may not be new, but it is urgent. And science can join this conversation from thousands of years old to say, be careful of the illusion of separation. And we've forgotten those invitations. So it just basically says, hey, Let's listen to the indigenous elders. Let's listen to the contemplative wise people. And let's, yeah, sure, add science to it. So let's use science to look at a lifespan view of how the self develops and then say, you know, maybe we were just wrong. And maybe the reason we're in trouble is we've been living a lie. And the good news about that is that if the mind constructed this lie, we can identify it and unconstructed, you know, to realize a larger truth. And yes, we've been told it by indigenous and contemplative wisdom practices. Fine. We don't have to invent anything new, but let's, you know, make a clarion call that we've been told this for thousands of years. Now here's the science to say why we better get our act together, because if we don't get our act together by acting together, you know, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. I think we all feel it. We all know it. And business as usual is not going to cut it. It's going to actually destroy things. So that's the whole purpose of the book. So yeah. I'm, I'm happy we're talking about it. Oh, no, it's fabulous. So, uh, and, and over the years, when talking about this, I sort of going back to old philosophy, you know, the Greeks, uh, they did, to me, they made a, a few major errors. Um, uh, criticism and critical thinking of one of them, but that's a long argument. But in this thing, we're talking about uh, that area of solipsism was one of them, even though that's a, uh, there's a lot of broad ranges in solipsism. It is that sort of thing of I am separate from others unless I choose to to make some kind of engagement. And I was always fascinated, uh, uh, to me, the amongst many other things, mirror neurons were the immediate uh, absolving of solipsism. It's just isn't true because we do carry um, an expression, a sense of the uh, a direct expression of the other person in our mind through mirror neurons, but also mm -hmm. through your concept of mindsight, the mm -hmm. way we can construct and we build uh, a, a sort of an image or a feeling of the other person's uh, brain activity or, or, or perceptions in our own mind. All these things creating uh, the necessary sort of um, 
uh, empathy, the necessary sort of awareness of the other's intention. Of course, this is for safety and, and protection and also for procreation. So these sort of things were, were quite extraordinary. And I've heard people talk, just the last thing, because I want you just to comment on those things, if you would, Dan, is um, the, they talk about the, the American social experiment. Uh, which was a solipsistic type of experiment uh, 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 just in this particular author was talking about and that um, the the individual as a um, as an entity that can bounce around within a cultural framework uh, was just also was an, was an error so I guess they're the three or four things I, I hope I haven't sort of made too muddy a picture but I'd love to hear your comments oh. and thoughts. No, not at all. You know, I think um, there's, a, there's a number of ways to approach these great points you're making, Richard. I mean, one is to say that there are linear thinkers and there are systems thinkers, and it's a different way of processing information, very much related to the idea of reducing something to its fundamental elements rather than seeing the relationality of those elements to each other, which would be the systems view, right? Mm -hmm. So in an insulting way, people would call that reductionism. You know, you're reducing things. And I think we have to be careful of, um, you know, some way of saying who's the good guy, who's the bad guy kind of thing. You know, by reducing the SARS virus, you know, to its elements, we can make uh, a vaccine and save millions and millions and millions of lives, you know. So there's nothing wrong when reductionism is put in the larger view of also systems thinking. So you want to balance the two and realize uh, there's a, a, a value for both a narrow focus on details and reducing things to its fundamental elements. And then to also realize, as was articulated in science in the 1980s, that when you look at the interaction among elements of a complex system, there's something called emergence that something emerges like the wetness of water is not in any H2O molecule, but you get a bunch of those molecules together, you get wetness. So that synergy, that, that the idea that the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts is a system's property uh, when you look at the nodes. So I think one way to understand all these things you're saying, Richard, is the human brain has both the narrow focus and the broad focus. And in the narrow focus, it can look at, you know, in a system we talk about nodes and the nodes, you know, are connected to one another. They're interconnected nodes. And when those nodes are interdependent, meaning the influence is mutual direction, you know, and there's this differentiation of aspects of the nodes, it's called a complex system, which is open, chaos-capable, nonlinear. And in all those features, it adapts and learns. But if you have a brain like we do, that can so narrowly focus on the node and say that the node is the whole entity of identity, a noun-like thing, right? Then what it becomes is for medicine the equivalent of cancer. When a cell says, I am not a part of this whole body system, I do my own thing, however I feel like doing it. I grow out of control, I kill the body, right? So we could argue, sadly, that a human mind that sees the self as only in the body is a form of cultural cancer. And, you know, when you see it that way, you go, oh my God, that's pretty serious. Well, 
Yeah, it's serious because these pandemics, each of the ones I mentioned, may actually be caused by that solipsistic view, you know, of individuality being the supreme identity. So, you know, the fight in a way, unfortunately, is even for us in mental health is to say, whoops, you know, we've spent 100 years trying to focus on self, 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 self development, self, you know, all that stuff. And we got it wrong. Because after all, the mental health of the world is not much better than before our profession existed. So what has happened is people feel less belonging in cultures like the United States, where I live, that are the most individualistic. You have the most mental suffering. Well, that's not, I think, a coincidence. I think it's a direct cause. And the lack of belonging comes from being told the lie that the self is separate. Well, certainly since the mid-20th century, we've nurtured narcissism to the nth degree. And and so in practical terms, what you've been writing about, do you see this as a panacea to the narcissistic um, cultural melee that we've created? Now, when you say the word panacea in the United States, just so we make sure we're, we're using English the same way from Australia, the <laughs> United States, panacea would be an insulting term oh, okay. saying you're proposing an idealistic approach that is not realistic. And it's just a pie in the sky idealist trying to say something fancy that actually is not useful. Okay. So from an English perspective, it just means um, an answer, a solution to the problem. Oh, how interesting. So this is a beautiful moment, right? Because I could have gotten very reactive inside of me, fight, flight, freeze and faint, oh. said, oh, Matthew is trying to insult me, you know, with this subtle term. <laughs> that that you know, would have been terrible. My God. Yeah. So, yeah. but this is good because this is yeah. what we, exactly what we need. Yeah. And even though we both share English, you have British English, I have American English, mm. unless I'm like being oversensitive, you know, if someone wrote an editorial about my book and they said, Dan's book is a panacea, it right. would be like the biggest insult you could, mm. yeah, yeah, it would be a stab. Yeah, um, okay. And of course, we know <laughs> in terms of mirror neurons and all that stuff, I mean, we know, I mean, this is not mirror neurons, but we know that, you know, literally a stab to the body is the same thing as social rejection. Mm. So you mm. feel like, anyway, but yeah, so in terms of do I hope that this is a solution, practical solution with realistic aspects to it. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's my deepest hope, you know, and the reason, you know, my hope to get the word out about this book is because change happens one relationship at a time. So if you begin your own relationship with the word self, just like we had this clarification about the word panacea, you say, oh, because it's amazing when you do this, what mm. people start going Oh, you know, self doesn't have to be in the body. You know, I go, no, it actually doesn't. They go, oh, that makes me feel really good. And I go, yeah, because you've been living a lie like I have been living a lie or being a professional as a liar, you know. So so this is where, you know, it's so exciting this moment, you know, that, yes, I do believe that there is a practical solution that goes across all the pandemics, but that's gonna require something called pervasive leadership. What that means is that each of us, whatever we're doing, professionally, personally, in our neighborhoods, out in the world, each of us has the potential to make a difference, to make an impact in whatever ways. And then to see in each individual you encounter this incredible potentiality to be a leader. 
So it's not just reserved to someone who writes a book or someone who's in government or someone who owns a company or something. Sure, we want people who own companies to say, whoops, we've been polluting the world. This is really bad because the world is us. Yes, so for sure. And at the same time, imagine a whole world where people can wake up like from the lie of the separate self. And then in every way that, you know, billions of us would then find a way to live. So it's modern culture. People want me to use the word sometimes Western. And I tried that once when I was teaching with the Dalai Lama. And he, with my 15-year-old son at the time, says to me, don't say Western. It's spread all around the planet. And my son elbows me and he goes, the Dalai Lama got you, you know. And I, <laughs> And so I don't forget that. So I will not use the word Western and to, to compromise with all the people who said, why aren't you owning your privilege as a Western white person that say it's you're the cause of it? I said, OK, I'll write a little sentence about this whole interaction with the Dalai Lama. I said, you know, it, you certainly could say it's Western originated spreading around the whole planet as the Dalai Lama makes sure I have to say. So we're going to name that modern. So I have no problem saying it's Western. But that's actually wrong. It's 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 our modern view around the whole planet. And by the way, the Australia. Well, I guess you could say that's in the West. But anyway, so this is where, you know, to me, the really positive message and what I tried to do in the book is look at, well, certainly mirror neurons, look at um, something called self-control, look at the default mode network. We can go into all that if you want, but look at from literally um, the evolution of life on Earth uh, entailed, you know, molecules being encased by a membrane and the membrane allowed that cell to survive. So just as a metaphor, but an actual physiological structure, you know, the membrane that identified the integrity of some unit, in this case, a cell, allowed the cell to survive. And especially if that cell is now a part of a whole body and working with other cells, you know, if it can't realize that the membrane is not defining this solo, isolated, separated self, it's cancer, as we said, or an autoimmune disease. So so then what you say is, OK, so there's got to be a way where, sure, we're going to acknowledge the inner of the body or the inner of the cell and then realize there's the inter of all the systems in the body, for example, but in the same way as the larger systems. So this is why the we word is right there on the cover. This is not a like, you know, kumbaya thing, like we're all one and everything. No, this is not about blending. It's about integration, meaning you need to maintain the integrity of the cell to have the cell participate fully as a part of the system. So we don't want to confuse the node with the system, but the node has its own integrity. So that's the me. And then the we is the inter part. And when you put it all together, we is the intra-connected whole. And then you get this really interesting shift where, just as my student that said long ago, you don't have to go me to we. Mm. You have we. And I'm, you know, since I'm teaching this all around all over the planet, I say to everybody, in a, show me a language where we can use that word for me plus we is we. And someone did say it recently. What was the language? Um, Oh, it was Japanese. There was a, some word about collective me or something, but I couldn't repeat the word, but he wrote it out. Um, but whatever it is, it's not that we have to invent new words, but in English anyway, there is no word. So we want to, you know, around the planet, have a conversation where it's super simple. And my hope is that this book 
presents the science and it presents an honoring of indigenous teachings and honoring of contemplative teachings, doesn't pretend to be saying something new, except that it looks at how the science can join with those ancient teachings of wisdom and then looks at the fundamental process of integration, of differentiation and linkage, looks at a lifespan perspective on this, looks at the neural networks that construct the experience of separation, and then talks about the kind of methods, and they're in the book actually, of dissolving that experience of separation and widening it out open. So it talks about you know, the plane of possibility, the wheel of awareness, the notion of Newtonian versus quantum realms of reality. And it really, I mean, it gets into all that stuff. So it's like, you know, you gotta put on your seatbelt for sure. But, you know, I just did um, uh, another, I did, a, I recorded a course this weekend and the film crew are not you know, in our field, mental health, but I had to take them on a journey into the plane of possibility. And they were all like, you know, getting really into it. And I said, well, how'd that go? They go, oh my God, that was like great. And they were, they're just like filmmakers. And then I was doing the audiobook for Interconnected and I'm reading the beginning of it. And the engineer is like, spacing out, not catching the things he's supposed to get. So I said, what's going on? He goes, this book is putting me into a meditative state. I said, good, I good. That's great to hear about the book, but you're the sound engineer. So let's figure out a way where you can do your engineering and not just enter this altered state. So my hope, because no one's really read the book yet, except a couple of people endorsing it, you know, is that people will not only read it and get the science to support what we need to do, but actually have the personal experience of transformation, which so far, if the audio engineer is any, uh, any measure of that, uh, it's a hopeful sign. Yeah, uh, there's so many things in, in there. What's been fired up a lot in this little bit of discussion now is the the linguist in me, the uh, which was uh, we, we were sort of my first degree, but I, I went into university after being an actor for 25 years, and I, I did linguistics because uh, I talked a lot, and as you know, <laughs> I still do. But uh, but but this thing of of you know, where language comes from and the the uh, the the way in which different languages have a, a a personality they have a they have a persona they have a representation of of what is familiar to the speakers and the fact that we don't have these sorts of words that you're trying to introduce um, uh, and and you know as you're saying there, there are other examples of this but into English we're trying to introduce something that we're not familiar with and it leads to that other question and I'm hoping as people read through the book uh, I mean uh, th that we explore not only that we need to introduce these ideas into our, our language but also just have a little philosophical think uh, about why 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 they were held back where where the restraints and the restrictions were so that when we uh, uh rather than opening new doors into something that uh, we know nothing about it's rather we're opening doors that have either been closed or have not been in the main part of the room as we have seen in other cultures have been the main part of their room they, they, yeah. You know, yeah. you know, they're, they're sort of saying what do you mean we oh, that's what we all do uh, so it's exactly really well one of the one of the interesting uh, uh, findings in reading the indigenous scholars' works that I've, I've read, you know, is the fact that Western languages have many more nouns than verbs, and indigenous languages have more verbs than we do in the Western world. Um, so this is really interesting because, you know, it isn't just that, oh my God, this is how we talk, big deal. It actually is a big deal because you start believing what you say, and then you hear someone else say it, 
and you believe it, you know. So, so all these nouns implies basically there's an entity, a thing, like the self is a thing in your body, for example, and you get a sense of certainty as an entity, as a noun. When in fact there's a fluidity as a verb that things are very dynamic but filled with uncertainty. And so in the, in the very beginning of the book, you go out and go through that and look at that linguistic thing. And then one of the interesting linguistic things that comes up is the word L-I-K-E. And you say, well, what's the big deal about the word? Well, studies show little kids, 14-month-old kids, will figure out who is like me and who is not like me. And if you are like me, I will like you. Right. See the similarity? <laughs> if you are similar to me in your taste, in this case, what kind of cereal you like, then I will have a sense of pleasure and feel a belonging with you. That term of like. But notice the same word mm. for similarity and feeling connected to. Yeah. You know, we're alike. Yeah. So yeah. I just found it fascinating to write this book because, I mean, the first version of it was kind of this fictional rhyming 300 page like story about a person named Sam and you never find out exactly you know Sam's gender but you go through Sam's inner life from before conception all the way to the end of Sam's life and you know it was a 300 page rhyme basically it wasn't a poem but it was a rhyming story and then you see Sam interacting with me and I was like talking to Sam, not really as therapist, but more like just a scientific discussion of what Sam is going through throughout a, the whole lifespan. Anyway, so I turned that one in and, you know, they did not accept that as a book. They said, this is not a poetry series. I said, well, it's not really a poem. It's a it's a narrative to help the reader experience it. So I had to translate that 300 page rhyme into a lifespan science thing and then condense it its um, size into very practical sections. And then in fact, I'll show you what I, I did because it was like a meditation to even write it. But then what I did is various parts of the reading, you'll go through this experience where you'll come across, you'll go into some deep space um, and then you'll see this Gaelic sign for the, the, the ah, breath. Ah, cool, yeah. It, so it's just an invitation if you want to, you don't need to, to pause, to just reflect. You could, you know, in the audio, you know, we did a few seconds, but you could, in there, you could just do a meditation right there and just let it sink in or not. You could forget it and just keep on reading. So it's your choice. But it was fun to put that in because even in the writing of it, I don't, I mean, we'll see what people think, but I had the feeling like of something like shifting in me, even as it was being written. And then I said, you know, I need a break. So I found that symbol and then every, I would just insert the symbol whenever I was feeling like, oh, yeah, let me take a few deep breaths here and just let that sit with me, you know. Um, and it felt that way, too, when I was doing the audio reading of it. Like, yeah, OK, this is the pause time. And there would be the symbol. I go, oh, yeah, right. Um, so I hope the, you know, in, in the original version of the book, and I had a bunch of people do a pre-book book club, I had um, seven chapters that, of course, spelled an acronym. And the acronym was sibling. So it was about self, identity, belonging, love, intraconnection. And then the last two letters were for the Greek terms noesis, which is basically conceptual knowing, and gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, for experiential knowing or experiential wisdom. 
And so when I was constructing that framework that people were commenting on what the chapters should say for them to feel good about such a book, um, you know, the idea of noesis, you know, I, I needed this book to have the factual information from science um, and then gnosis, make sure the indigenous and contemplative wisdom was in there. And I put two practices in the book that are in the appendix, the wheel of awareness and these integrated movements. So the reader who's willing to dive into both noesis and gnosis, by the time they're done with the book, you know, it's it's like, you know, this expansive potentially expansive experience, my hope is, as the writer. So I'll look forward to seeing what people think. And, you know, uh, I'm just intrigued because I don't know why it went on this journey from a rhyme, you know, to a reason book. <laughs> I, I don't want to say there is no rhyme and reason, but there's both rhyme and reason, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, talking about nouns and verbs earlier and your approach, you know, from in, in your first approach to the book uh, reminds me about our propensity to see things uh, more than relationships. And I was just wondering, have you had a chance to talk to Ian McGilchrist? Ah, because I was going to say, you, it's really good just to, to let people know that you and Ian will be talking about uh, the documentary and about uh, Ian's work uh, with the Gaines Club. So everybody go have a quick look at the uh, at Gaines. But yeah, please. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mindgains.org. Please go. Yeah, yeah. It's so great. You know, I just watched uh, the documentary they made about left brain, right brain stuff. And it'll be fun to have a discussion with Ian. Um, you know, it's very interesting. And I say this in the beginning of the book, you know, as you probably know, a lot of neuroscientists are dismissing the left right difference business and really don't respect the work. Um, and so since I those are some of my colleagues, um, the way I've handled that is to say, look, the science talks about a left mode and a right mode even if the left mode has many elements of the right hemisphere that are participating and the right mode has many elements of the left, which turns out to be true. Um, so you, we don't need to make a big deal of which side of the brain it's on. I'm going to say this to Ian on Friday. Now, he may not agree with me, but for me as someone in our field, interpersonal neurobiology, who's really looking for consilience. And so far, we've been around for 20 years. You know, we've sold over 1.25 million books. We're the largest mental health series on the planet. And what we've tried to do is stay pretty consilient and try to stay where if someone says, hey, it's not just left hemisphere, we go, cool. But mm -hmm. there is a left mode. They go, of course, there's a left mode and there is a right mode. And then, you know, you can bring everybody into the discussion. That's what I'm going to say to Ian. So he will probably disagree, I'm sure. But for me, then I would say that everything he says, I would interpret through the phrase left mode. So you don't have to fight with any card-carrying neuroscientists who are really adamant about this. Um, and and they're, they're thoughtful, smart people. So when you talk about modes, they say, of course, it's a mode of processing that in, in science terms, we call it dissociable. That is, they can be separated from each other. So by using the word mode, you're consistent with the rigorous science that's been updated from all the research that Ian, you know, has has summarized. And then you're good to go. And then you can say, yeah, there's a left mode that has a narrow focus of attention that reduces things down to its parts and doesn't seem the relationality to it. And that's a left mode. Sure. You could also call it a linear mode and you'd be 
just as successful. If you want to call the right mode a systems mode, it would be fine too. And you can get away from anyone's allergies to right and left reductionism, which it kind of is. So we're not going to do that left mode pension to reduce things to left or right, but you can call it systems. You know, So the systems mode would be the right mode, which sees this broad view, sees the relationality among parts. And yeah, of course. And and I have I work with system scientists at MIT. They never use left or right. Mm, and mm. they are scientists studying systems. Um, yeah. And if I said to them, you know, it's the right mode you're in, they go, fine. Well, how does that really help me? I yeah. really want to look at systems connections on the planet so I can teach children in schools, for example, to be more compassionate, to realize we're all connected to one another. It was these folks from MIT. We were together in the forest. So I didn't have to come out and say, oh, I got my right mode activated, my left mode shut up. It wasn't like that at all. Mm, it was mm. the interconnected whole. And I think Ian would agree with this, at least he, the way he, he says he, it. You he, know, absolutely. You know, yeah. so, but this is why I think... You know, I'm a little nervous about like there's starting to become a war. Do you believe in Ian or do you not? Because oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Actually, when you talk to card-carrying neuroscientists, they they don't. I mean, it's too bad because the message is so great. Yeah, and, and yet when you when you make it so left versus right. Um, and you could have done the exact same thing with using the word linear systems and yeah. you'd have the same potential to change the world. But this way, it, it, it invites a bunch of very esteemed neuroscientists mm. to say, you know, this is not accurate. And I agree with them, actually. And so what then happens is you make it so all the beautiful things that could come out of it, because people like to reduce it to entities like left brain or right brain, then instead of looking at the more verbal nature of it all, you're actually inviting division. This is where um, my attraction to interpersonal neurobiology and Dan Siegel uh, goes back as well as my mentor, Ernest Rossi, was this desire and capacity to look at something and say, oh, where does this take us? Mm. As different from where does this restrict me? And uh, is is that sort of what you're talking about? That that there's that that battle of of restriction and, and definition to expansiveness and, and growth. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it's it's interesting because when I think back to you know my training um, in you know in medicine in the '70s and '80s, and um, you know, it, it's a long story, and I'll, I'll probably tell part of it with Ian. Maybe. I don't even know. But, you know, when I dropped out of medical school, uh, my my girlfriend's this is the way it works. Right. My girlfriend's uh, uh, apartment neighbor was just teaching the book Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. So she handed it to me. And this was 1980. Right. And in 1981, you probably know Roger Sperry got the Nobel Prize for discovering left right differences. And at the same time, my teacher of neuroscience, David Hubel, got the Nobel Prize for basically showing the basics of neuroplasticity. And so it was a very exciting time, although I was a dropout from medical school. Um, but I you know, but for me, in my own personal journey, it was really helpful to talk about left versus right. Now, the, the issue there, and Gazzaniga, of course, uh, uh, was a student of Roger Sperry. He's a graduate student, uh, as was Colwyn Trevarthan, who was, they're both on the, uh, the documentary with Ian. Um, 
And when you talk to when you talk to, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Colwyn, you know, it's beautiful to see the way he took this in to looking at musical language and looking at babies developing and 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 things like this. And when you look at, you know, Gazaniga, you know, he and I had this you know, big argument once up on a stage in front of a bunch of psychiatrists, you know, where he was saying the right hemisphere does nothing. You know, so in contrast to, you know, to Colwyn, I mean, Gazaniga was saying, and he even says it, I think, in the film, that the right hemisphere is useless. Well, sitting next to me was Alan, you know, Alan Shore. Sure. And he's like elbowing me going, listen to that. So, of course, you know, I don't have any problems standing up to father figures. So I just got up to the <laughs> microphone. I said, excuse me. And I started quoting all the research to say that Gazaniga was wrong. The right hemisphere was really, really, really important. It may be nonverbal ways that his verbal presence presentation somehow couldn't articulate it wasn't very comfortable but in any event um the funniest thing there was all in public so i can say is that gazaniga um came off the stage early and the person running the thing came up to him with his microphone activate and said i've paid you for the full hour you're not going to leave early and it was it was an uncomfortable moment you know oh boy. but the 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 that was a long long time ago but the issue yeah. is can we embrace both? And I think Ian McGill Chris beautifully invites us to embrace both. He's never saying that one is better than the other. He's just saying they're different. And in that sense of where interpersonal neurobiology came, you know, from the very beginning, um, when I think about my training as a therapist, it was so reductionistic of this way or that way or this way or that way. And there was nobody trying to put it all together. So I felt very strongly when I became an educator you know, there needed to be some place in our field that just invited everybody in for respectful, caring, inquisitive, you know, challenging, but loving, supportive, compassionate ways of coming. So I always thought of interpersonal neurobiology as a kind of almost like a tent and invite everybody into the tent. It's raining outside. It's a hard world. And could we have a conversation? So a card-carrying neuroscientist who says, you know, what, what everyone's been doing, including my hero, Betty Edwards, who wrote Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, she was too severe about left versus right. I say, okay, then would you be okay if I say Betty, Betty Edwards is really talking about drawing on the right mode of seeing? They go, that would be fine. It's like, okay, no problem. Let's use the word mode instead of brain. They go, oh. <laughs> linguistics. And then they come into the tent. And before, you know, just like we had the panacea issue, yeah. we just say, let's relax. Because if there's one reality, which I think there is with many realms, then if we just get it right, rather than setting up, I think the word is polemics, where people are going to fight with each other or something, we don't have to do that. I got unbelievable changes in my life when I did Betty Edwards' book, drawing on the right side of the brain. If she had called it drawing on the right mode of the mind, I would have also picked it out if my girlfriend's neighbor was, you know, <laughs> still selling it to me or giving it to me, you know. So so this is why I guess for interpersonal neurobiology, Richard, to get to your point, and I hope, I, I, I don't even know if this is clear sharing all these stories, but I always felt like if you could see how someone's really trying to be honest, and really trying to understand things in a disciplined way with an open mind. And as Adam Grant says, you know, think again. That's such a great book. You're challenging your own beliefs. I would always do that maybe because I'm a kind of doubting person. I always doubt myself and even doubt my own doubts. Like my friends are astonished 
that I've even published one book, let alone a couple of them, you know, because I always doubt myself. I'm doubting now. I don't even, I doubt what I choose for dinner. You know, I'm, I have this big doubting thing. So I always felt like, as Adam Grant says, if you could think again about something enough and it had a solidity to it, like going to mode instead of side of the brain, I didn't have to chuck all the amazing direct gnosis I got from Betty Edwards' book. And if these neuroscientists who are really caring, devoted people, they're not bozos, they're really caring, devoted, smart people are saying, don't do this big left brain, right brain thing. I go switch it to mode and they go, fine. Of course, they're dissociable modes. It's like, okay, this is, this. It, then I don't want to say it's easy because it's not always so easy, maybe simple, but it's not easy. So then what you do is you really understand every discipline's kind of way of thinking. And then what you do is you try to word it. This is why the words become so important in a way that invites everybody into the tent that says, you've got something really important to share. Let's see what your languaging is. So if you guys are an Australian, use the word panacea, I'm an American, that's an insult. Instead of just going, wow, they were so insulting to me. No, I said, <laughs> what do you really mean by that? Yeah. And when you start saying to people, what do you really mean by it? It's amazing. There is a vision of a singular reality when you're coming from indigenous teachings, contemplative teachings, the various disciplines of science, art, music, all that stuff. So that's why interpersonal neurobiology, we call it a conciliant approach, but we're very, very cautious about fixed ways of presenting something that then uh, causes all sorts of rifts because if someone's really devoted, like these neuroscientists are, and they go against something, you know, sometimes you have to push back. Like I have people yelling at me saying, you know, the mind is just the brain. And I'll go, well, that feeling is now between us. So that's not just the brain. You know, if feelings, what the mind is about, you know, sure, your brain isn't part of it, but it's not just encased by your skull. So that's been a bit of a pushback, but it's led over these 30 years to actually people relaxing into it. So they say, yeah, of course, the mind is not just the brain now. Back then, you, you had to figure out what what is worth the push. So anyway, that's my long no, no. answer about interpersonal neurobiology. No, it's a beautiful, beautiful answer and, and, and covers, again, like always, so much wonderful ground. I, I guess the, just to share with you, the, you know, what Matt and I um, kind of follow is uh, if there's an ism, uh, it's creative constructionism. And, you know, we, we sort of try to say to people that uh, there's always this place you can go. And we, we've tried to differentiate the elements in our book and say, here are all the elements. So how do we put them? Now, how are you going to put them together? What, what, what ways when they come together, what emerges and uh, systems, you know, how to think in systems is, is like in the introduction. That's that's a fundamental framework to understand how there's the, the, the two differences. So, um, uh, well, I, I I would just like to say I've learned well. Uh, I hope I've learned well from you because <laughs> I've been hanging around you for a, for a long time. And uh, and to have you come and talk to us is always a great a great pleasure. We probably have to sort of wrap things up now just because. Time does that that to us, and uh, you probably got things to do. You know what you were just saying was was such a beautiful uh, message and, and framework. But is there anything else that you would like to add or just conclude uh, for our fabulous listeners? You know, I really think we're at a, uh, a crucial moment in human cultural evolution, and that we can feel 
you know, despairing. We can feel hopeless. But, you know, part of that, I think, comes when we see all the challenges that are here as threats that get us to turn on our reactive systems of fighting, fleeing, freezing, fainting. And it's exhausting. And you could feel really depleted. So part of what I hope you're hearing, you know, from Richard, Matthew, myself, you know, is something I try to say in the interconnected book, which is instead of having this threat state of mind, let's switch it to a challenge state of mind. And think of these challenges as dance partners. So that as I've you know, gone through writing this book over these years and wake up in the morning when I used to feel despairing and hopeless, it's amazing, but it's a shift where I say, okay, how am I going to dance with the challenge of today, you know, and take it on? And what's the music of today that I dance to? And if we can then set our dance steps in a certain pattern, a certain direction, and not get overly worried about or invested in what's the exact outcome going to be, but rather that we're committed to working together in this direction. In this case, I'm suggesting it's let's dissolve the false view of the self as separate and instead embrace this interconnected view of we. That's the simplest way of summarizing it. Imagine that we do that together. We don't know exactly what the outcome will be, but at least we'll have tried you know, and I think that all the pandemics of the world are waiting for us to wake up to seeing life as a challenge and really invigorating ourselves with this sense of energy that we can belong to one another in this journey to make a difference. And, you know, mental health professionals are an incredibly important position to try to make a difference. Educators, coaches, people working all things, but especially when we're working with the level of the mind, I think I think I think we can do it. And I think we will do it if we do it together. That is so beautiful. And I would encourage everyone to meditate now on exactly what Dan has just told us. Such a challenge. True. This is such a challenging time. And I hope that your book has an amazing impact and uh, no doubt in a positive direction. So glad that you've been able to put this down on paper. I would lo- would have loved to have read the original version, but uh, <laughs> but um, looking forward to coming out. Now, just remind us again the release date for the book. So the release date for the book is November 15th, 2022. Uh, and if you really want to get a copy ahead of time, you can you can reach out to Norton and mm-hmm. and uh, see if they um, can get it to you even get sooner. A, but a review but November yeah. 15th, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Dr. Dan Siegel, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Lovely to see you again, Dan. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Uh, fabulous. Dan's always a great value, uh, really you know, has his subject down. But, of course, yep. I've been listening to Dan talk about this um, this idea and this concept for you know, a decade now, and uh, uh, it was really great to have it put down on paper and as you say he doubts himself but once you put it down at least you've got something specific to doubt uh, yeah. <laughs> so he, he certainly does that but yes. but um it, it's uh, it's wonderful um uh, to have talked to him and uh, yeah and we, we had a pretty long talk so i guess we we kind of got to go yeah yeah so uh once again all the details in the show notes check out dan's new book And there's a conversation with Dan Siegel and Ian McGillchrist coming up very soon uh, within a couple of days of us releasing this podcast. So check that out in the show notes as well. So thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time.
Okay, bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.